He's the guy who's there's not a single prostitute he hasn't slept with. Right. Not a single one. He hasn't found satiation. He hasn't found any sort of calm. Mm. Mm. He is like he is he he is he's he's prepared to travel halfway around the world because he's heard there's a prostitute that he hasn't slept with. So here she's is she a master educator in addition to being a high end prostitute? I mean, what why is it that she says this and where does she where does she have this wisdom from? I it if if some if I was seeking wisdom about how screwed up men are around sex, it might be that talking to a prostitute would be a good way of having that conversation. Like she's got a voice here. When do we hear the voice of a prostitute? So there's like when do we hear the voice of the person who like actually her intelligent, thought out, coherent voice? Not when she's provoking or playing the game, but she's actually just saying, "This is what I can say about the men who come to me." He didn't want to hear. He didn't want to hear the fart, and he didn't want to hear what she says now. Absolutely, I'd imagine like both of them are equally toxic. The fart right. is a wake-up call because it's the wake-up call that actually she's a human being. That was my chavruta and nemesis, Rabbi Joel Levy. I'm Leon Wiener Dow, creator and host of Padrash. As you'll recall, this season revolves around the concept of tshuva, repentance. In today's episode, we explore one of the most difficult and critical aspects of that process, our ability to see ourselves from the outside. Joel and I were discussing the Talmudic encounter between a sex addict who becomes a rabbi and a prostitute who passes gas during the act. Our task in this episode is to connect that zany story with the one brought to us by a reporter who invites her dad to revisit a missed layup that, in his narrative, changed the course of his life. And then, to explore the ways in which struggles with body image offer an avenue for understanding the complex task of trying, best we can, to narrow the gap between how other people see us and how we see ourselves. This, in the service of Chuva, becoming a better person. Welcome to Episode 2. Inside, looking outside, looking in. We have a lot of Torah to learn. Y'all stay with us. Our text for the day is actually two. I first heard a version of this story on This American Life, where reporter Emmanuel Berry takes her father, Bobby Berry, back to a moment he'd rather forget, and they view together a video of him playing basketball in the state finals. But there's a different version of the story that appears on The Nod, a podcast that offers interesting angles on black life. In that version, which is the one we focus on a bit more in our exploration, they never view the game together, but they have quite a talk that literally brings tears to my eyes nearly every time I listen. Emmanuel Berry was a passionate and talented basketball player in high school, and it was a source of connection to and attention from her dad. Until, until it became something else. But when I got to high school, I cared less about the game. Our post-game talk stopped feeling like conversations and started sounding like lectures. I started to dread the car rides home. And there's one ride from my junior year of high school that I still think about all the time. I was walking to my dad's car after the game, and as soon as I closed the door, it started. Why didn't you do this? You need to do this. How could you do this? As I listened to the steady rhythm of my dad's critique, 
I realized these lectures weren't about me or what I wanted. They were about him. So I did something I had never done before. Shut the f*** up, I shouted. He was taken aback for a moment, and then stony silence, waiting for an apology. But it was an apology I wouldn't give. I told him that I didn't want to talk about basketball with him anymore, and if that's all he wanted to talk about, we didn't need to talk. So we didn't. For over a year, we barely spoke to each other. What Adult Barry discovers itself worthy of a different Chuva-related episode of Padrash is that she's been carrying this conversation around for years, upset that her father never tried to get to know her. But then she realizes that she hasn't made the requisite effort to get to know him, and this conversation and the visit back in time to the basketball game he screwed up is part of that effort. A lot of the opportunities for me to be seen went out the window. Is that part of why I wasn't supposed to ask about the game? Well, I think your mom felt knows how hard it was for me, and I feel that I have a lot of resentment about the opportunities that I felt that it could have changed my life from the way we are now, from me doing what I am. But over the years, I've gotten better, and I feel what happened has happened, um, and I've come to come to accept it. Then, in this way that can happen in life, which is always, despite our best efforts to fight it, unscripted, the conversation takes an unexpected turn, and Bobby Berry shocks Emmanuel and me every time I listen to this conversation with the most heartfelt, disarming, sincere apology to which a person can aspire. He's so nimble, grounded, and caring that I listen in awe. I guess what I'm trying to express is that I feel like most of the like attention and feedback that I have gotten from you has been about basketball in my life. I'm sorry, I don't... I, I don't want you to apologize, it's not... No, no, feedback, <laughs> I don't know. We don't talk too much. You you always avoid me. I don't avoid you. Okay. When you come in and you say, so, hi, Dad, how you doing? You know, I don't, you know, he's now feeling guilty. You should not. I don't want you to feel guilty. That is not what this is about. Okay. And it was. I think it was frustrating to you for me to say things to you and talk about it. And that's all I could talk about was basketball with you and not. And I guess I didn't realize that. Until your mom said something to me that the reason why you didn't want to ride home was because of uh, all I could talk about was the game and how, and you didn't you didn't want to talk about it, and I would keep talking and talking. Do you remember me yelling at you? Vaguely. <laughs> <laughs> the, you vaguely remember me yelling. At vaguely, you. I do. I didn't want to talk about basketball with you anymore. But, like, we also then, like, just did not talk, like, that much at all for, like, a while. Huh. I guess I didn't realize that. I guess you do. You you sort of remember it more so than I do. I remember me saying that I won't talk to you, you about basketball anymore. And I know, but, like, the result of that was that we just didn't talk at all. I'm sorry. I don't I don't want you to apologize. I'm just like I guess I at the time I guess I 
guess I didn't know how to talk to you about very much of anything else. But the conversation doesn't offer a simplistic, all's good ending. Bobby's pained by what he's seen, and Emmanuel knows that she's responsible for having allowed that pain to resurface. My father at the kitchen table has far less compassion for himself. How are you feeling? Uh, depressed. But I can't do anything about it. It's like I said, it's, it's sad to see that game over again, that's for sure. And I didn't, still I feel the same way. I felt that I did not play very well the way I felt that I should. My dad finally got to see how this moment actually looked from the outside. And it didn't change anything for him. You can't imagine that things were different. The tape proves the way I felt that I played is what the tape shows. And yet, Bobby didn't know everything about himself in advance. He admits that there was a redemption of sorts in watching the game with Emmanuel. The next morning, my dad told me he had something he wanted to say. You know, I actually felt a sense of relief after watching a game with you. I don't think I would have watched it, to tell you the truth. So... Getting through that with someone that you care and for them to sit there and watch and just be brutally honest, like you said, I'll play you like, excuse my language. But those things are important. I want to welcome my friend and colleague, Rabbi Shai Held, President Dean and chair in Jewish thought at the Dahar Institute. He's also served as director of education at Harvard Hillel and was 2011 recipient of the prestigious Covenant Award for Excellence in Jewish Education. And he's been named multiple times to Newsweek's list of 50 most influential rabbis in America. Shai holds a doctorate in religion from Harvard, and his first book, Abraham Joshua Heschel, The Call of Transcendence, was published by Indiana University Press. His second, The Heart of Tour, was a collection of essays, which was published by JPS in 2017, and he's currently working on a book entitled Judaism is About Love, uh, and it is a pleasure to welcome Rabbi Shai Held. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Leon. Good to be here. Shai, I want to start by asking what initial reactions you had upon hearing Emmanuel Berry's story and interview with her father? I think I had two main reactions to it. One was I found myself thinking about how we often build up conversations that we've avoided having Mm. such that they feel larger and larger and more Mm. and more terrifying. And this moment in which it becomes clear that she has given both herself and her father an enormous gift by opening up the unopenable is just very moving. I I have to say, I was also conscious of the fact that life doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you open the unopenable and you realize it should have remained unopened. This was a beautiful moment precisely because something transformative happened for both of them. They both saw one another and themselves differently in light of the encounter they had. The second thought that I had was about the ways in which sometimes being asked to reflect 
on something that we've said or done allows us to almost step out of ourselves for a moment and observe in a way that the heat of the moment or the flow of our daily life doesn't so easily permit. When you say that, what, what, are, you, uh, what are you specifically thinking about? The ways in which he, the father so readily heard the daughter saying, all you ever wanted to talk about was basketball. I felt like I couldn't be me. And you could almost palpably feel his resistance kind of melting away. The speed with which he uh, took responsibility was was almost unarming. And I think it disarmed her as well. I think that Emmanuel Barry, uh, there's twice that I recall where she says something, you know, which is a very painful memory of, you know, that you never asked me about my other things. You didn't seem to care about the other things. You were, you were always asking about basketball. And, and twice he says in this kind of simple but heartfelt way, I'm sorry. And her reaction is, oh, but that's not what I wanted, which is kind of, um, I think she's being truthful that that's not mainly what she wanted, although I do think she also wanted that. And there's something very, very powerful about that moment. Yeah, what I actually found very moving about her saying that that wasn't what she wanted mm-hmm. is it felt to me in that moment like it wasn't what she wanted because she didn't want to set herself up for disappointment mm. and she thought she wouldn't get it. Right. And the fact that he just came right out and gave it to her, mm-hmm. I, it felt like she didn't know what to do with herself. There was no self-rationalizing, mm. no self-justification, no right. exculpating himself, none of that. Right. He just, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Right. It's very, very yeah. moving. Yeah, it was powerful. What do you think allowed him to do that? What is it in a person or what is it from your listening to their interaction that allowed him or that allows a person to not be threatened to just kind of deliver with ease or accept with ease and, and, and with grace and without defense uh, someone's having been hurt even if it was unintentional by me. One of the things that I have found myself thinking about since listening to that episode is a distinction offered by Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook at the beginning of his book, Orota Tshuva, The Lights of Tshuva, of Repentance, where he talks about the difference between what he calls Tshuva Pit Omit, sudden Mm -hmm. or abrupt Tshuva, Mm -hmm. versus what he calls Tshuva Hadragit. We would call it Hadragatit, staged Tshuva. In the first instance, Tshuva is an event. Something happens and something flips with inside me, and fairly abruptly, I'm not the same person. In the second instance, chuva is a process. It is something that has been slowly unfolding within me or between me and someone else for a very long time. <laughs> and I found myself wondering, was the father's chuva in this episode, was it mm. abrupt or was it a process? Oh. Was it that he was so surprised after all these years by his daughter making herself vulnerable to him, something she hadn't done seemingly in a very long time, that something just flipped for him? Or is it that all these years of distance from her had slowly worked and, you know, like water on a stone, had softened something in him that was just waiting for mm. a moment to express itself. Yes, meaning meaning both. Like I think that there's some way in which what happens there is that it's what uh, Rav Kook calls hadragatit or hadragit, um, gradual in the sense that 
Um, it took him years to develop to be the person who he is at the time that we hear him. And it's sudden in the sense that I think that he didn't know what was coming. In other words, I'm, I think that he didn't know where this conversation was going. And so I don't think that he was kind of preparing himself over time for this apology. He was able to say with kind of alarming simplicity uh, and straightforwardness, I don't think I was able to do that back then. I don't think that I understood back then what I was doing. I don't think that I had that in my toolbox as a father and as a man and as a person. You know, it, it's interesting you say that because one of the things that I've often thought about in the context of that passage, of that passage in Rough Cook is how often does what we might think of as abrupt or sudden chuva depend on a long prior process of mm. ripening? Something has to prepare me for that moment. Meaning had she done that to him 10 years before, he might have shut her down. Maybe now is a good time for you to um, share with us the text that this uh, podcast brought you to. You know, the text that I brought, I think, connects to the story that we're discussing at a somewhat odd angle, but I nevertheless think they have a lot to say to each other. The Talmud recounts the story of Elazar ben Durdaya, a, a man who is, I think in modern idiom, we would say addicted to prostitution. And there's a certain hunger there, an insatiable hunger that he has that culminates in him traveling across the sea with a sack full of dinarim, which is, from what we know about ancient coinage, at least a couple of years worth of salary, right? This is a person who is truly out of control, cannot mm-hmm. stop himself. In this very crude moment, the Talmud reports that she passed gas and essentially, in, in that moment, says to him, just as this cannot come back, so Elazar cannot return. And that sets off utter panic in him. And he starts running around seeking out natural phenomena. We can talk about why that is. Mm-hmm. Seeking out trees and mountains and saying, please beg for mercy for me. And each one of them says, well, before we plead for mercy for you, we should plead for mercy for ourselves. Finally, he realizes that the search for someone else to fix it, for someone else to fix him, is not going to work. And he says in these incredibly poignant words, Ein hadavar talui elabi, the matter is dependent only upon me. He puts his head between his knees, he sobs, and he dies. And a voice comes forth from heaven and says, he has a share in the world to come. I've been studying and teaching this story on and off for many years. And it's one of those stories where every time I prepare to teach it, I come to the conclusion an hour before I'm about to give a class, I have no idea what it means. It's <laughs> such an elusive, powerful story in that way. That's why I right. suggested it. I think the fact that he never actually turns to anyone, a person or God, and speaks to them, speaks to some deep truth of what's broken within him mm. and doesn't get fixed. And and yet, it doesn't get fixed. And yet, at least according to the story, it seems that he gets a kind of stamp of approval. So I'll tell you what this always reminds me of. Maimonides, when he talks about working on virtue and when he talks about repentance, if I recall correctly, often uses a phrase that I think is really very important to him and has become very important to me. He talks about how a person is obligated to do what he's obligated to do or what she's obligated to do. Mm-hmm. 
to the best of what he's capable of. Using the tools that we have and the brute facts of what we are in this moment and make meaningful strides towards becoming more of what God would want us to be. He has to repent as Elazar. He has to work with the materials he has. And he starts out in a place of profound brokenness. He never gets to the point of being able to turn to God and saying, Slachli, forgive me. The critical moment is when he says, that it's incumbent upon me, then that, according to the way that you're uh, quoting the Rambam, that it's according to his abilities, that's the moment in which he understands that his process of tshuva is oriented fundamentally around him and his capabilities and his process. Yes, exactly. And, and the sobbing is about the realization, I think, of how long he's run from that and how incredibly hard that is for him. Right. Now, on the one hand, he says, the matter is entirely dependent on me, so it makes sense to go inward. And yet it doesn't seem that he ever gets the opportunity to learn that one of the things that going inward makes possible is a deeper and different form of turning outward, right? Mm. That when you go in and repair what's broken, you are able to relate to what is not you in a much different, more genuinely loving and generous way. He never gets that. Yeah, in that sense, in that sense, I would say that there's something deeply unresolved and kind of in a gnawing sense about the story. That, you know, to say that, okay, now he's going to get a place in the world to come as if he's done the process of chuva, I think that it's deeply disturbing. Um, that it's kind of the process ends with him alone. I want to. I want to go back so, to. Leon, I'm, so, I'm sorry. Can I interrupt you for just one yeah, second? Please do. Please do. I, I guess part of what compels me about this story is precisely that it doesn't have any kind of ribbon ending. Mm-hmm. It's not a story. A story that heals all brokenness. It's a story that finds a road to mercy precisely in what remains broken. The only person who's in this story, other than Elazar ben Diaz, is the prostitute. And in that sense, his learning process begins with the prostitute. She's the one who sends him on his process of tshuva. What does it mean for a prostitute? to be the one who's giving him this sentence, which is going to send his head spinning. What it means to to go to a prostitute is basically to degrade another human being and to look at that human being as a function of my physical satisfaction. What could be partnership is ultimately um, an act of conquest and being alone. And so there's this moment when you would kind of expect him to not even hear what she says. It's often struck me that what she's telling him, in effect, is, you know, just as gas is kind of nothing, there's no there there, that's what you are. You're of no substance either. And that's painful for him. In other words, what, what I would say is, and here I want to... It's devastating to you. Yes, it's devastating. And that's, that's, I would almost say, what's remarkable is that, is that it devastates him, as opposed to his dismissing it. One way to frame or to express, I think, what you might be saying is, how far beneath the surface can his desperation really be? On some level, he must be almost conscious of it in order for her words to land as they do. Right. Right. 
I don't want to compare him to Bobby Barry, um, the father in the story, but there's a readiness that the father has when um, the daughter Emmanuel Barry comes and says this to him, um, such that he can say yeah. immediately, you know, I'm sorry, even though he wasn't expecting it. And what I would say here is that Elazar ben Duldaya has a readiness to hear it, but he but he hasn't really gone through the process. He's not ready to say I'm sorry yet, right? He's he's ready to start the process. Yes, I think that, that that's actually a really kind of important distinction here. What she is able to do is to set him on a journey that will be long and difficult. Bobby Berry is already in a place where he can respond to this kind of criticism from a place of deep inner quiet. One of the things that struck me about him in the conversation I listened to was that this Mm -hmm. is someone who actually feels very centered to me when he talks to his daughter. He feels like there's a kind of inner quiet. I think one of the things that Jewish ethics actually invites us to aspire to is to get to a place where, to use a more modern philosophical idiom, we are responsive but not reactive. That moment, she tells the story about the moment in the car when she curses at him. And even then, it's, it's almost as if there's a premonition there where there's a quiet there that you can almost hear in, in his reaction as she tells it. Um, he, she calls it, I think, a stony silence where he's waiting for her to apologize. Even if that's right, there's something profound about that. He doesn't yell back. He doesn't yell back. Exactly. I wish I could do that as a father, you know, to like, to just like um, hold space for the person who's crossed the line to write themselves. Where do the uh, issues that we've been talking about meet you personally? One of the things I'll say is that I think this notion of living from a place of grounded quiet is something that I dream about and have very rarely been able to tap into. One of the things that happens when you have been raised in a less than stable environment is that every conflict, no matter how small, begins to feel enormous Mm -hmm. and almost intolerable. I really can't say strongly enough how moved I was by the quiet with which he received her words. When someone responds to being criticized with indignation, it is sometimes, I mean, one has to have really, I think, pretty good judgment about this. It is sometimes helpful for a pastor to say, is there anything in what's being said here that deep down you know you ought to hear? Is there something here Maybe your child, your spouse, your parent is saying makes you incredibly angry because you don't want to hear it and you know you should. Can we just open that up for a moment? You know, we were talking about why you picked the text um, from Abu Zarah about Rabbi Elazar ben Dudai, and it could be that part of why you chose that text in conversation with this story is that that's ultimately where he gets to. It's not where he starts. It's where he ultimately gets to, where he says, it's me. In other words, the beginning of his process of tshuva, he's kind of infantile or maybe um, juvenile in terms of hoping that someone else is going to do the work for him, right? right? And essentially, it could be that that 
moment when he, it's true that he's crying, so he's not, it's not quite the quiet that you're talking about, but that moment when he puts his head between his knees and he realizes it's not going to come from the mountains and it's not going to come from the sky and it's not going to come from the sun and the moon, it's just going to have to be me, is precisely that kind of pause, that kind of quiet that you're talking about, which Bobby Berry, you know, already has. <laughs> right, 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 right. I've experienced, you know, close up people who go through their whole life flailing because they can't center at all. Mm. And in some instances, when it's rooted in personality disorders, that raises all kinds of interesting questions about how much, if at all, they're actually capable mm -hmm. of real chufa. But in other cases, it's just a question of, are they willing to face the kind of sobbing, if you will, that Elazar has to go through? I don't think at the beginning he's ready for that. He only gets to the stage of sobbing towards the end. Right. In that sense, you know, it could be that the process of chuva itself is a process. In other words, we first start by doing what everything in nature does, which is to look for the path of least resistance and finding that quiet and understanding that it's only from within, from the depths of our being that we're going to be able to do that is the path of the most, the greatest resistance because it's our inner selves that says, no, no. And to try to get to that place that you're describing is, is, is immensely challenging. Yeah. In light of what you're saying, I would be remiss not to say one other thing here, mm -hmm. which is that I think this story also for me raises in a particularly poignant way the ways in which the psychological and the spiritual lenses can sometimes be in tension, even though they're so intertwined. I find it really fascinating to think about how does the way we culturally have been trained to talk about people like Elazar as sick interact with the way the rabbinic story is rooted in a cultural context in which we look at people like Elazar as sinful? Although I will say that once or twice when I've taught this, when someone has spoken up and spoken about addiction, they've talked about the resonance for them of the fear of going inside and the need to do that. It's a particular kind of addiction that Elazar has. It's an addiction to prostitution, and it's keeping that person with whom he's having sex two-dimensional. And I think, uh, just to bring it back to the story from the knot, I, I think that uh, what we have in listening to that story is the opposite of two-dimensional. In other words, what we have there is, yeah, is right. a conversation between a father and a daughter where she's taking a chance, she's taking a risk and opening up a conversation that she's not promised a happy ending to it. Um, but what they both bring is an attentiveness to one another and a willingness to let what transpires between them echo and find a foothold in their own personalities or their souls or their beings. And so I think that's what enables that process to take place. It's, it's a very different process in that sense, in the nod, in the story that we hear, than it is from um, Elazar, who's kind of doing everything solo. You know, Leon, what you're saying 
brings me back to something we spoke about earlier, which is the ways in which the willingness to turn inward and the ability to turn outward are mutually dependent. Mm -hmm. The fact that he can't turn inward effectively means that he can't really turn outward either. Right. So he's alone, but he's desperate as opposed to grounded in his aloneness. Which might answer the question that you asked in your Plagued By, which, which is why does it have to end with his death? In other words, he might not be capable of, to, if to quote, you're quoting the Rambam in terms of where he is in his process, he might not be capable yet of going in in a way that will then allow him to be otherwise with human beings in the world. I think that is what I'm finding in that story. That's the tragic dimension, is that he's capable of repenting, but not of being renewed in the way we would want him to. You sometimes hear people give sermons in which, well, you're Israeli, you don't hear anybody give sermons, but you sometimes in America, you hear people give sermons And they talk about tshuva as if we are all made of putty and all we have to do is decide how we want to shape ourselves. And I'm often struck by, are you sure this is not actually a destructive thing to say? Because people are going to go home and discover that they're not putty at all. Right, right. That actually they're often made out of rock and it takes a lot of time. Rabbi Nachman talks about prayer as, you know, water upon a rock. Right. It's hard and it's slow and it's not linear, right? We're not putty. The Kutzke Rebbe says, the meaning of Judaism, working on myself, but be honest about what material you have and what material you don't have. And the story of Elazar is a story to me that at least in part feels like it's honest. It doesn't say, oh, create yourself ex nihilo and make yourself a different self. It says, you know, Go inside and work. Mm. Rabbi Shaiheld, thank you for joining us. It was a real pleasure to have you. Padrash is a project of Kolot, a fantastic organization in Israel where I'm privileged to direct the Beit Midrash. Before we continue on to Susanna Neufeld, guest of our Hypertech segment, we'll break briefly in order to meet David Sherez, co-founder of Venn and a Kolot alumnus. We chatted so that I could learn about him and how learning at Kolot has impacted him. David, welcome to Padrash. I'd like you uh, to share with our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself. Since I know myself, I was drawn to the connection between different sides of communities. And I think that, uh, that my life journey was, uh, was all about connection. And later on, when I founded my, my startup, Zen, which is all about creating a community in the city. I'm married to Aya, and we have two young children, Naomi, who is four years old, and Asaf, who is two years old. And we live uh, today in uh, Ramat Hashon. Share with our listeners how you got to Kolot and why you decided to learn with us. When I started university after a long uh, service in the army of about 10 years, I was looking to open up more to the Jewish thought and, and finding something to add to my regular, you know, studies in, in university. Mm-hmm. And I met uh, Mordechai and he said, uh, why don't you come to Kolot? We're, we're opening a new group and could be relevant for you. And I said, yeah, why not? And it opened up a journey of, of five years, a very significant one for me, meeting amazing people, 
connecting to to roots that I I, I never met like I never opened a, a, a Daf Gemara before mm-hmm. and suddenly being able to read it to understand it and and also to find relevance for my my life it enabled me to to look at life uh, from another perspective so I think that that Kolot inspired and and also uh, affected very positively all the the project that I did since then mm-hmm. and to bring the, the, the depth of, of, of what we learned in Kolot into the business world, into the social impact world, and also to, to find guidance of how, how to do things, how to come to a new neighborhood and to start a community project, which is also for profit, mm-hmm. a startup that combines real estate and technology and community. That's one of the main things that I learned from Colot. Everything matters if it's relevant for our lives. David Cherez, thank you very, very much for joining us. Like every episode of Padrash, learning at Colot pulses between the text as discussed in the Beit Midrash and the broken reality that surrounds us, beckoning us to hear voices of wisdom that can point the way to a better world. To learn more about Colot, visit www dot kolot k-o-l-o-t dot info and now back to our episode i'd like to welcome to the hypertext segment of our program susanna newfeld a psychotherapist in the bay area who's been working with people with eating disorders and body image issues for upwards of two decades she's the author of awake at 3 a.m and the mother of two daughters Thank you very, very much for joining us. The reason that I thought that it would be especially instructive and insightful and helpful for us in our discussion to meet with you and talk with you is precisely because you do work with people who are struggling with issues of body image. Let me just start by asking broad, what does that mean? And and what are you after when you're trying to help someone with who struggles with that issue? So body image um, is composed of a couple of different areas. I think of body image as being how accurately you see your body. Do you see what other people see? Second, what are the expectations that you have of what you want your body to look like, what you think your body should look like, Mm -hmm. and then how closely you think that you meet those expectations that you have. And then the third, and I think perhaps the most important is how important your idea is of how what your body looks like, how important that is in your idea of who you are as a person. The first issue is the the relationship between how someone sees themselves and how other people see them. Give me a sense of, first of all, what from your experience often causes that and Mm -hmm. what you as a therapist, when you come and you're trying to help someone presumably uh, bridge the gap between how they see themselves and how other people see them, what what are you after? So it's very hard to get this sort of stable sense of this is what I look like. And I think people often try to to find that from looking at photographs or looking in the mirror, which is actually quite different from what other people see when they look at us. You know, we're three-dimensional beings um, that are in movement. So that's that's just one piece to hold there. But 
I think it might be interesting to talk a little bit about the brain and fear. And I am not um, a neuropsychologist in any way, shape, or form. And I really mm-hmm. am bad at talking about it technically. So this is going to be more of a gestalt. The, the, good news, I, the good news is I won't be correcting you. Yeah, there you go. There you go. You <laughs> I'm, know, I'm further think, away from it than you are. <laughs> but I do know that there are a lot of things in terms of how our brains are that affect how we look at ourselves. And one of them is fear. So when you're afraid of something, it can look bigger. There's these studies about spiders, for example, and people who have Mm -hmm. a phobia of spiders, if they're showed a chart of a spider is in a bunch of different sizes, and then they have to look at a real spider and they say, what size is it? You know, they'll point to one that's much bigger than the size Mm -hmm. that it actually is. Whereas people who aren't scared of spiders might see it more accurately. People who have any kind of body dysmorphia, it's actually the fear center of their brain that lights up when they're looking at themselves. So they might see themselves in quite a different way Hmm. than someone might see if they were processing it from a more neutral emotion. Hmm. Hmm. Another thing that, that can happen when people have a distortion in what their body looks like is that they're looking at the individual body parts or different features rather than seeing the whole. So there's mm-hmm. sort of that missing the forest for the trees. You've helped me understand the problem. Help me understand your intervention or your attempt to help solve sure. the problem. What do you, what sure. are you after? There isn't an actually any true fixing it in this world that we live in. It's like, you know, going out in the rain and getting wet and then coming inside and drying yourself off. And if you go back outside again, you're going to get wet again. <laughs> we live in this culture that's very toxic for how right. we view ourselves, right? right. Luckily, of- right now, we can just make sure that it's only from the shoulders up since it's we true. only need people on, on, on Zoom. It's true. It's true. Oh my gosh. I've actually found that that's been really helpful. <laughs> I was only, I was only a little, I won't even say half joking. I'm, you know, maybe 10th joking. Okay. So a couple things, you know, first, I think I want to tell you a little bit about what we kind of used to do to mm-hmm. help and why things have changed a little bit. Great. One of the things that used to be done, there was this very classic body image exercise you'd have people do where you'd, you know, get out a big piece of butcher paper and you'd have people trace their outline, what they think their body looks like. And then you have them lie down on it again. And then you trace them and then you show mm-hmm. them, oh my gosh, you know, you thought you were so big and look, you're actually smaller than what you saw. Right. And over time, this kind of exercise where it's sort of trying to correct the thought we now know that it does a lot of harm. And, and I actually did it with people. I mean, it was something I learned how to do early in my career and I really regret it, but it does a lot of harm because it really reinforces this idea that it's better to be smaller. We really want to get out of any kind of thing that's about assuring someone that it's not as bad as what they see. So I don't do a lot of stuff that's about trying to help someone see themselves accurately. There's a lot of research on things like mirror exposure, which is kind of standing in front of the mirror. There are a lot of different exercises you can do. Like you practice seeing your whole self versus the parts, you know, I've done it before. I've had people practice smiling at themselves and looking themselves in the eye and saying, Hmm. hi, like that's a real person. There is an exercise that's often done where you describe what you see in the mirror using neutral terms and you practice leaving out judgment. So instead of saying, you know, I see chubby arms or something like this, you would say, you know, I see my arm. It is shaped so that it goes out at a slight curve here. I think it's a lot more with the folks that, that I work with about shifting the meaning 
the understanding, challenging the cultural messages. If we could, let's let's now transition to that third point, which is the way in which someone's body image or their image of their physical self um, relates to and weaves is woven into a sense of their overall sense of self. Yeah, I think this idea of figuring out what your values are, what's important to you, what are you here on this earth to do? You know, Mm -hmm. there's a great exercise where you kind of actually write your obituary or your epitaph the Mm -hmm. way that you would like it to be. What do you want people to say about you at Hmm. your, upon your death? Hmm. You know, Um, and, and is that actually going to be a comment about what your body looks like? You know, have you you ever had, have you ever given um, someone that um, exercise and they said something about their body? Really? Everybody knows, even people who are really suffering with this, they know that it's not making them feel free. They know it's making them feel miserable. And that isn't necessarily what they'd want. And most people, when they have the attachment to wanting to look another way, they can get down to what that represents. What's that feeling that I'm going for? And then what does that bring me to what I want in life? Do I want a community that keeps me safe? Do I want work that feels meaningful? Do I want the people in my life to feel like I was compassionate with them? And Hmm. then to let that be the things that we judge ourselves on. But that's a practice of doing something over and over and over again. It's not going to be an aha moment in a therapy room or your friend says something to you. It's a it's a long process. Is it okay if I talk about the podcast? I mean, I thought I loved that podcast the first time I heard it. And I think part of what I loved about it, right, is she has this idea, the, the, the This American Life version of it, especially, she has this idea that if she shows him the video, you know, he'll see that it wasn't that big of a piece right. and it will, you know, cheer him. And you can hear her in the beginning kind of trying to go see, look, it was not that bad, you know? And right. then she realizes partway through that actually... You know, he didn't play very well. He didn't play that well. <laughs> yeah, it's you amazing. Know? It's an amazingly powerful moment because she realizes yeah. that her whole, you know, her whole therapeutic approach is going to yeah. have to rethink. Yeah, and he, you can tell when she acknowledges that that he feels so much more respected right. by her, and there's a piece of, I think, processing of grief that happens by having that not argued with, not having someone try to, you know, talk you into thinking positively or looking on the bright side, but just sitting with you in that space. Hmm. And I think that that grieving process is some of what has to happen when we're trying to heal. We've talked about, or we've started to talk about the way in which someone's image of their physical self Mm -hmm. relates to, and is a part of their overall sense of self. Um, yeah. Tell me, uh, tell me a little bit more. Help me explore the relationship between how we see ourselves physically mm-hmm. and how we see ourselves holistically, or as a person, or overall. Yeah, I mean, I think that when somebody judges themselves harshly for what they look like, there's often a sense that they don't feel good about who they are, or how they exist in the world in other ways. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we think that the way to shift how we feel about ourselves is to shift how we feel about what we look like. But I actually think that it's often the other way around. If we can shift how we feel about ourselves, then it will change our relationship to how we see ourselves. And I think that that shift um, can be 
sort of the old standard of thinking about self-esteem and thinking mm-hmm. about, you know, what are the things you do in the world that are valuable, that are meaningful? Mm-hmm. I want to revisit the exercise that you said you sometimes give people that you're working with where you, where, where you ask them to write their epitaph or write their eulogy. Um, and I want to ask, the thought occurred to me while you were describing that exercise, that it actually feels like a new and improved version of stand in front of the mirror. And I'll tell you what I mean by that, which is the standing in front of the mirror part, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, we, we don't actually, I mean, we have this kind of false sense that we see ourselves objectively by standing in front of the mirror because really what we're doing is seeing ourselves two-dimensionally and it's reflected back and we're trying to look at ourselves. We're, we're trying to be the subject and the object at the same time. It's, it's a complicated thing to do, but it takes us so far in terms of the ability, right? As you said, it offers us the possibility of trying to describe ourselves objectively and to separate ourselves or take a step back from Um, the sense of judgment. It seems to me that this exercise you give is, sounds brilliant to have people describe themselves um, as they think that they would be described or should be described or would want to be described on their epitaph or in their eulogy. That forces them to confront that unspeakable thing, which you mentioned, death, and do a total and thorough accounting of who they are and an accounting of who they are and what matters to them in a way that does push them to view themselves in as objective or external of a way as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and external, and this is the final thing I'll say, and then, and then I really want to hear you, external in two senses. Number one, external is in, in the sense of how do other people view me? Yeah. Uh, and external in the sense of how does my lived life match up to the values and norms that I'm committed to? Maybe at the end of my life, it's not just somebody saying, well, okay, you know, you take apart, well, she was thin and beautiful. We don't want that one. Then you might say, well, I want at the end of my life for them to say, well, she helped all these people and she wrote all these books and she, you know, did all these impressive things. But then maybe even the last, last one, which would be, you know, she took time to really feel present with the people that she was with. And mm. she laughed in this certain way where you could tell mm. that she really had this joy, <laughs> you know, and she cared so much for her community that, that we kind of stepped down to that right. level of what are the things that make life feel like it's bearing fruit. Those are the, the, the lives worth living and the epitaphs having worth having uh, written. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Susanna Neufeld, thank you very, very much for being with us on Padrash. I appreciate it very much. This was really fun. Thank you for having me. How can we see anything just as it is? I'm reminded of the words of Franz Rosenzweig, one of my favorite philosophers. And I admit that very turn of phrase tells you just about everything you need to know about me. Anyway, Rosenzweig said, It's true that my eyes are only mine but it would be foolish to believe that a person must gouge out his own eyes in order to see things as they are. Rosenzweig's image somehow makes it patently clear. There is an objective reality out there, but we have no way of accessing it other than through our own perspective. That's a general philosophical problem, but it becomes even more urgent when we're trying to see ourselves in an effort to evaluate and improve who we are in this world. As Susanna Neufeld pointed out, 
If our emotions influence our judgment regarding the size of a spider we just encountered, then surely they'll impact the way we see ourselves. So, we're left looking in the mirror, either the literal one or the virtual one, the one we have in our minds, trying to enlist the wisdom she brought to bear in our conversation. If I don't want to distort my view of myself, I can't focus exclusively on one of my features. I have to judge myself holistically and favorably. I have to try best I can to do an honest accounting, one that doesn't lace terms of judgment and evaluation in the conversation from the very beginning. But Susanna pointed to another tool we can employ, one that's unpredictable to be sure, but I would submit the most powerful force available in confronting our inner walls of resistance, another human being. A friend, a companion, or a family member can acknowledge our folds of fat, our misdeed, our failure as a parent, or even our missed layup, and help us along the way. And sometimes it can be a stranger, even a stranger whom we're wronging, such as the prostitute whom Elazar ben Duldaya visits, who can release a statement of rebuke so odiferous that it sends us into a deep tailspin, forcing us to evaluate ourselves every bit as harshly as we deserve. As Rabbi Joel Levy said in the opening of the episode, sometimes we can only understand our failings and even our depravity if we give the microphone over to the ones whom we've made wretched. But no matter how loud the clamor of other human beings in our lives who are prodding us in the right direction, their words have potency only to the extent that we let them in. Aina devar talui el The matter is only up to me, said Elazar ben Duldaya. As Rabbi Shai held remarked, looking outside for transformation is always an escape, and an ineffectual one at that. Bobby Berry had enough inner quiet to make space for his daughter Emmanuel's words of pain and to his wife's words of wisdom along the way. I have a hunch that that inner calm is also what allowed him to sit with his daughter, watch himself miss a layup, and say with just the right amount of pain and remorse that he played horribly. But to add the next morning that watching the game with someone whom he loves and who will speak honestly with him, those things are important. Padrash is a project of Kolot. I'm Leon Wiener Dow, creator and host. My sincere thanks go to this episode's guests, Rabbi Dr. Shai Held and Susanna Neufeld, to our producer, Noam Zuckerman, to David Goodman, our sound editor, to Michael Golsamir for the original music, to the newest member of our staff, digital media intern Hannah Taylor. Welcome aboard, Hannah. And of course, to my chavruta, Rabbi Joel Levy, for the learning, the wisdom, and the straight talk about sexual deviance. Please visit our website at www.podrash.org, where you'll find links to the original episodes from The Nod and This American Life, and to Joel's and my extended chavruta, along with the text that we referenced. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, tweet, like our page on Facebook, and please give us a five-star rating. It really helps. We'll be back next week with Episode 3, Nailing the Apology. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>